Uh, maybe we should begin. Uh, you know, it's late in June by this time. Uh, uh, attendance may not uh, fill the room. Uh, but yeah, let's, let's get started. I, I don't necessarily assume that you have been here for the previous three weeks when I have talked about the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. I, I should mention that my name is George Hunsinger. I'm a professor at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. I, I'm very happy to be here. I, I always find this to be a very stimulating uh, uh, audience. There's a high level of interest uh, in these questions. Uh, I've been looking at uh, the handful of questions in the Heidelberg Catechism that are concerned with justification by faith. Even though that phrase is not found, interestingly, in the Heidelberg Catechism, there are questions that deal with it. And that, of course, was the heart of the Reformation. And this year, as you know, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So there will be uh, more and more celebrations of that around the world as we move uh, toward uh, Reformation Day in October uh, and so on. So I thought this would be a good time. I had in previous years here started at the beginning of the Heidelberg and just started marching through, but I leaped over uh, a lot of questions uh, to question 56 and questions uh, 60 through 64 uh, in, in order to take up the themes of the Reformation year. And uh, today, what I wanted to do was to try to say something about what it is that still separates uh, the uh, Protestant churches, the churches of the Reformation, from the Roman Catholic Church. You know, there, there are convergences. It's a complex matter. The Roman Catholic Church is, you might say, a big tent church. You know, it includes a lot of different tendencies within it. Some of those are much closer to Protestantism and the Reformation. Uh, others uh, are in some divergence. Uh, there are still points, uh, uh, I'm afraid, where uh, there's not really a consensus, not really an agreement between what the Reformation taught and what the Roman Catholic Church uh, still teaches, although the differences can become very subtle uh, in some cases. Uh, I have uh, prepared some handouts and put some stuff up on the board, too. Uh, it's kind of there behind me. Maybe it's not that easy to uh, uh, read from where you're sitting. Here's a handout from last week that uh, tries to write down and even develop material that I had put on the board. So, yeah, uh, I, I think we can just distribute them through... Uh, the group. But I, I made a new handout for today, and this will have uh, more to do with thinking about what makes the Catholic view uh, different from the Reformed view, uh, especially. So we'll need to get both sides of the room uh, again. Um,
I, I will touch uh, today on something that Jason mentioned uh, in his sermon last week. Uh, uh, you may recall he talked about uh, the, the famous phrase from Martin Luther, simul justus et peccator. Uh, that actually is one way of getting at what still separates uh, the Reformation from the Roman Catholic Church. That means that from a reformational point of view, we have a kind of paradoxical situation or an apparent paradox. How can we be completely righteous before God and therefore acceptable to God, completely righteous, simul uh, justus, and at the same time, completely sinful? And so simul justus et peccator, when Luther laid that idea out, uh, he took different positions about it. Sometimes he said we're partly sinful and partly righteous. Other times he said completely sinful and completely righteous. I, I think the completely side, the totus side, totus, totus, as, a, as opposed to partum, partum, gets more to the heart of the matter and to the puzzles that arise not only for Roman Catholics when they hear Protestants talk, but also for uh, many Protestants themselves. And there are Protestants who don't necessarily uh, accept or certainly understand what's at stake in saying that we're justified and saved at the same time. In uh, looking at the Heidelberg Catechism on these matters, so uh, if you have it in front of you, uh, I began with a, a question on uh, the forgiveness of sins, question 56, where it says, God grants me the righteousness of Christ. See, that's, that's crucial. And I, I suppose I should back up for a minute and say there is agreement on one really important point about how to understand what the New Testament teaches, and that is, apart from righteousness, we cannot be acceptable before God. And therefore, uh, there can be no salvation if we somehow remain unrighteous. So we need righteousness. We need a saving righteousness in order to enter into union and communion with God and receive the gift of eternal life. So righteousness is the precondition, logically, for receiving eternal life. And Catholics and Protestants agree on that. The question is, how does saving righteousness become ours? And to put it uh, simply, maybe too simply, but just as a way of uh, uh, beginning to get at the, where the, we have the parting of the ways, I, I have wanted to focus in the Heidelberg Catechism, but it may even have seemed a little strange or tedious to you, but the Heidelberg Catechism does use the phrase in Christ, and I understand in Christ to involve participation in Christ. And in the very last question that the Heidelberg has on this, it talks about those engrafted into Christ by true faith, question 64. So being grafted into Christ, a kind of agricultural image re reminding us of what Paul says in Romans 11 about uh, uh, 
the vine and, and Gentiles being grafted in uh, and so on. Being grafted into Christ, that's a way of talking about union and communion with Christ. Being grafted into Christ by grace. Uh, a similar idea is the idea of the body of Christ, where Christ is the head and we become members of his body. So the body is an image of union and communion with Christ. And being placed uh, in Christ in, in a mysterious way. The, this, this is a difficult idea uh, to understand. When Calvin wrote about this in his Institutes once or twice, he used the, the phrase mystical union, unio mystica. It, it, it's a mystical union. It, it's a mysterious idea. It, it doesn't conform to common sense. But somehow we are made uh, members of Christ by grace through faith. And that means we're made members of Christ by grace through faith in spite of our ongoing sinfulness. So it, it's really the in spite of character that uh, has to do with what makes the Reformation different from Roman Catholicism. Uh, in spite of our sinfulness, God accepts us and makes us members uh, uh, of his son, of his incarnate son, members of, of the body of Christ. Uh, but it has to do with our being in Christ and, and being in Christ and being grafted into his body uh, and so on, and therefore being clothed with his righteousness, as the reformers like to say. So the saving righteousness uh, that makes us acceptable before God and makes us uh, capable of receiving the gift of eternal life, as far as the Reformation goes, uh, has to do with Christ giving us himself by grace to faith and making himself one with us so that we are, as the Reformers like to say, clothed in his righteousness. So the righteousness by which we are saved is the righteousness of Christ in spite of any ongoing sinfulness in us. So there is ongoing sinfulness, but it's overridden by the mystery of union with Christ by grace through faith. Remember, I, I think I pointed out once before, Calvin said that uh, the chief work of the Holy Spirit uh, is to give us the gift of faith. And the chief consequence of faith is to bring us into union and communion with Christ, into that mystical union. Uh, we could expand upon this uh, a little bit and say the chief work of the Holy Spirit is to bring Christ to us through word and sacrament and us to Christ by grace through faith. So, so Christ comes to us uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, operating through the proclamation of the word of God, through scripture, uh, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. You know, these all bring us into an encounter with Christ. Uh, and then uh, in response, uh, you know, grace brings us to faith. And I use the image of uh, lightning and thunder. Uh, you know, Grace is like the lightning, and, and you know we, we say thunder and lightning, but actually, if you think about it, first you have the lightning, and then you have the thunder. You know, the, the response to grace is faith in the way that uh, lightning follows thunder. Oh, just a quick, uh, maybe you could comment on, I think, one of the temptations that maybe we as Protestants or 
certainly in the modern era face, is a tendency to, to view this in terms of a license to sin. Uh-huh. Yeah, license to sin. That's, that's a really good question. And it's, in fact, one of the worries that uh, Catholics have about Protestants. They, they think that the doctrine of justification by grace through faith has uh, led to a kind of moral laxity. You, know, you, you, you give up. You don't have to try. Why should I uh, engage in works of love? Or, or why should I try to be obedient to God? My salvation has already been taken care of in Christ, and therefore it doesn't really matter what I do. So I, I, you know, I don't have to do anything. You know, that, that's a kind of uh, half-truth. It's actually addressed in the Heidelberg Catechism. If you look... Uh, uh, on quest, question 64 uh, in the Heidelberg, so it's on page 40, question 64. Doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? And uh, the answer is no, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ, so those who really live in union and communion with Christ, those who have fellowship with Christ, it's impossible. It says, for those grafted into Christ by true faith, not to produce fruits of gratitude. In other words, good works. Well, what does that mean, impossible? Well, uh, it doesn't mean that we don't sin. This is a deep question. It's hard to, to get at. Uh, let me Let me say a little more about how things are thought out on the Roman Catholic side and then come back to this. On the Roman Catholic side, the saving righteousness is the righteousness that takes place within us. You know, the, the formation of our souls, the, the sanctification of our souls, the righteousness that we acquire through good works. Uh, so in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you can actually lose your justification if you commit a mortal sin, and then you have to go through penance uh, and so on to be restored if possible. A lot depends on what counts as a mortal sin. There, there's a range of uh, views on this. You, some lists of mortal sins uh, are kind of hair-raising, I think. It makes it almost impossible not to commit a mortal sin. You know, I mean, uh, uh, there'd be hope for any of us. Others set the bar very high, you know, murder, uh, uh, adultery, you know, grand larceny, that kind of thing. But, but you can actually cut yourself off from the grace of Christ uh, permanently, mortal sin, if you commit one of these really terrible sins. But that's because of the prior idea that saving righteousness is the righteousness in us. So the, the great contrast is between the phrase in Christ and the, fra the phrase in us. So on the Roman Catholic view, to put it simply, we are saved and we acquire righteousness uh, by how grace operates in our lives and shapes us into people who are faithful and righteous and holy. But that righteousness has to be in us and we're saved because of the righteousness that exists in us. 
were in our souls, uh, in our lives. Whereas the Protestant view is that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ in spite of our ongoing sinfulness. So, so we're not saved because of the righteousness that takes shape within us. We're saved because of the righteousness that Christ has acquired through his obedience apart from us. And you may remember, I think it's Romans 5.19, it says, uh, by the righteousness of one man, uh, many will be saved. So it's the righteousness of Christ as our substitute for our sakes and in our place. He bears uh, the judgment before God that would otherwise fall upon us so that we're spared. And uh, he also is the perfect covenant partner of of God that we never were, that no human being ever was, or or that even Israel or the church have not been, uh, in order to give us his righteousness in both senses, both the active sense of, of being that perfect covenant partner and the passive sense of bearing that judgment and bearing that wrath in our place. It's interesting, uh, uh, there are Roman Catholic theologians, I, I've just been uh, reading a, a very good one who uh, takes his bearings from Thomas Aquinas, and he thinks that Christ is our substitute, but only with regard to what the uh, reformers called active obedience. So Christ as the, the covenant partner who lived a, a life of love and obedience toward God and toward the neighbor, but he doesn't bear the wrath of God. He, he doesn't die the death of the sinner in our place. Uh, in the uh, handout from last time, I, I gave an account of 2 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 21, uh, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know how to understand that verse apart from Christ really being made sin and really dying the death of the sinner to block that off for uh, the faithful so that they don't have to undergo that death. Uh, and that, re- see, Catholics will often say, as this brilliant uh, Thomas does, well, this is inconceivable, and it's impossible. Well, uh, I tend to think that we have to figure out what's possible on the basis of what's actual. And... Uh, If he actually died, uh, if God made him to be sin in our place, then it's not only possible, uh, it has its own inner logic, its own intelligibility. And to order to understand that inner logic, I think we need to go back to the sacrificial religion of Israel. I'll take your question a second. We have to go back to the sacrificial religion of uh, Israel and... Yeah, there's a, there's a strange logic to that whole complex of ideas of how an innocent animal, uh, the blood is shed uh, in order that God's mercy might prevail. I actually don't like the term penal substitution, even though it's very widespread uh, on both the Catholic and the Protestant side. I would rather talk about sacrificial substitution. It, it's not that the idea of penal substitution is entirely wrong, but it would be better to talk about merciful substitution. The whole reason for the sacrificial religion of Israel is so that the people can be corporately restored into a a proper uh, relationship 
with God. So it has to do with mercy and restoration. And it's, it's kind of a caricature to emphasize the penal aspect uh, so that it looms over everything else. It, it's sacrificial substitution. It includes a penal element. But by grace, it's for the sake of mercy. It's so that God's mercy can and does prevail. Okay, let's go back uh, to this question about doesn't uh, the Reformation teaching lead to moral indifference? Well, see, if you, if you think the way Roman Catholics do, and a lot of Protestants also, uh, the, the whole question is, what do I have to do to be saved? So there, there's a necessity there. I, I have to uh, live uh, a life of love and obedience to God and love toward my neighbor. You know, there's an inner necessity there because my fate, my eternal destiny depends on it. What do I have to do? And the Reformation answer is, in that regard, you don't have to do anything. It's not a matter of have to do. What do you want to do? This is how much God has loved you. It points to the indicative. This is how much God... Look, look to Christ on the cross. Look at what God incarnate did for your sakes and in your place. What do you want to do? Not what do you have to do. What do you want to do? So the Reformation tries to take the whole question of good works or the Christian life or, or uh, a life of love uh, and compassion and mercy toward others. It takes it out of the realm of necessity and puts it into the realm of freedom. It puts it into the realm of freedom, meaning that it's a free response of love on our part to a love and grace and mercy that are freely given. God actually did not have to save us from our sins. It's a free act of grace on God's part. God went so far as to become incarnate. God went so far as uh, to be rejected and despised and spat upon and treated shamefully and die that death on the cross, that most shameful of all deaths, uh, the, the death of a slave, really, it says in the, the, the Philippians. You know, he, he took the form of a, of a slave. We usually hear servant, but actually I think slave is, is a better uh, word to translate doulos. I mean, it's the lowliest of the low. It's, it's the most shameful. Uh, he, he entered into the depths because that's our situation before God, apart from God's love, apart from God's mercy, apart from God's grace. This is what God has done for you. This is how much he suffered in anguish to restore himself, to, to restore us to himself. What do you want to do? Well, Isaac Watts, in the famous hymn, gives us the answer. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's a free response to the grace that's freely given. So it is true, you know, somewhat more true on the Lutheran side than on uh, the reform side that our church is a part of. Uh, the Lutherans, uh, but this is true throughout all the different churches. The Lutherans have a tendency of what's called quietism, where it's faith alone, grace alone, you know, we don't have to do anything. They, they just sort of, they, they, they don't have that urgency to uh, uh, live 
uh, a robust life of obedience, typically. It's absolutely not true of all Lutherans, of course, but you know, it, it's a tendency that you can notice. On the reform side, and I quoted this in the handout from last time, there, there's an anonymous person from the 17th century, and this is, I think, the answer to your question, who said, I had rather face a regiment of the king's army with drawn swords than one lone Calvinist convinced that he is doing the will of God. So, so Calvinists have uh, been uh, very eager to do the will of God on earth, both as a community, as a church, and as individuals, because they have that sense that although God owes us nothing and does not have to save us from sin and death, God gives us everything by giving us himself in Jesus Christ and if he has given us everything, then love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What do you want to do? The Holy Spirit will prompt you. The Holy Spirit will work within your heart to give a free response of love. Maybe even a sacrificial response. Maybe even unto death. This is where martyrdom comes from. It's important, I think, especially for people in affluent sectors of the United States to remember that much of the church around the world today is a persecuted church. I mean, I think we need to pay more attention to the persecuted church. And the number of martyrdoms, I mean, there, there, there's a group that tracks this. There's the number of martyrdoms from uh, the turn of the 20th century today has been rising exponentially. I mean, it, it's hundreds of thousands a year. So since the turn of the 20th century, we're looking into the millions. So there is a persecuted church. Uh, we don't have, in our circumstances, much direct experience with uh, martyrdom in the Christian community. But elsewhere around the world, the church is uh, very hard-pressed. It's persecuted, and people give their lives for Christ and the gospel, not because they're trying to save their souls, not out of some inner necessity, if I don't do this, I'm eternally lost, but out of love to God and Christ and loyalty to Christ, they will persevere to the bitter end. So I think that's the answer to this question that uh, if grace is so free, you don't have to do anything right. You don't have to do anything in order to be saved, but you do have to be faithful and express gratitude and love to uh, the inconceivable, uh, to the infinite love uh, and unconditional mercy of God. So it takes it out of the realm of necessity and puts it into the realm of love and freedom. Love and freedom to God demands my soul, my life, my all. It changes everything. It means that I mean, these people who give their lives for Christ and the gospel uh, realize that uh, they don't have to uh, save their souls. You know, there's a story in my uh, Beatitudes book. You, you can hold it up, show them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I interpret, I, I read the Beatitudes as the self interpretation of Jesus. And you know, one of the Beatitudes, of course, is Blessed are the merciful. And uh, I tell a story in that chapter about a Presbyterian pastor in Uganda. 
during the days of Idi Amin. And he uh, preached an Easter sermon in, in a stadium, and people came from all over the country. And, and this was a time when the church was uh, terribly persecuted. He had a very close associate uh, who was martyred later on by Idi Amin. Uh, he himself uh, escaped, as I'll explain. But after that sermon, you know, it's addressing thousands of people in an open-air auditorium or stadium. Uh, he turned around. He was, he was uh, taking off his uh, vestments. And there were three of Idi Amin's guards standing there with their rifles pointed on him. And the uh, leader said that they'd been monitoring him. They'd been tracking him for for weeks or months, you know, and this was it. He said, if you have anything to say before we kill you, say it now. So he said, well, I mean, he said, I didn't know what I was going to say. But he said, I have already died. I have died with Christ. You cannot really kill me. I have died and my life is hid with Christ in God. But if you, if you kill me, I will pray to God to forgive you and to save your souls from hell. And the, uh, the riflemen put down their rifles and the leader said, will you pray for us now? And he did. And so he was saved. But he had that sense... He had died. His life already belonged to Christ. Colossians 3.3, you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. The same thing can be said about your righteousness. This is the Reformation teaching. Your righteousness is hid with Christ in God. You don't see that perfect righteousness in your life. That sin still clings so closely you, know, you, you may even get discouraged. You, know, you, you try so hard, no matter how hard you try, you, know, you can't seem to make any real progress. Uh, there are besetting sins or, or whatever, you know, people who are especially sensitive to the, their failures before God. Uh, your righteousness is hidden with Christ in God, but it's real. It's real in him because when he died, you died. He took you with him. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? As a matter of fact, you were there. When he died, you died. And when he rose again, he took you with him. So your, your righteousness and your life are hid with Christ in God. And that's why Luther would say about Jesus, he is our righteousness and life. So that this is, I think, a way of distinguishing the Reformation view from the Roman Catholic view. For the Reformation, Christ is our life. Christ is our righteousness. Uh, he gives us his righteousness and life by giving us himself. It's not something separate from him. I, I would see this uh, as uh, uh, something we could represent as a circle with a single center, Christ at the center, and we participate in Christ, in Christ, you know, by grace through faith, whereas the Roman Catholic view is more like an ellipse with two focal points, two foci. Christ is the source of grace, and, and he gives us the grace to imitate him, 
uh, to uh, uh, conform to him as, as a model, but he's not the reality of our righteousness. So saving righteousness for the Roman Catholic Church is the righteousness that exists in us. And if you don't get far enough in this life, you can look forward to a term in purgatory uh, until you you, uh, overcome the sins you committed in this life and until you attain that perfect righteousness, which we all agree is needed, in yourself. Whereas the Reformation says it's already given as a gift when Christ gives us himself. So that's why it's so important to think about being in Christ uh, as the, the, the leading idea more than Christ in us or grace in us. You know, of course, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, uh, but it's not just that grace empowers you to acquire saving righteousness. Christ is our saving righteousness. And he took you with him uh, into the presence of God and intercedes for the church now to all eternity uh, until he comes again in glory. But we don't have to acquire that righteousness, that saving righteousness, through our own works, through our own response to the gift of grace. The righteousness in us will be perfected at the end, but not by our own efforts as empowered by grace. The righteousness in us is not saving righteousness. The saving righteousness is the righteousness that Christ himself gives us when he gives us himself through the word of God, by grace, through faith. So that I see as the basic difference. You know, I, I've given you a, a bunch of uh, further ways of, of uh, th- thinking that uh, through, you know, trying to distinguish uh, uh, where the, where the divisions come between uh, the Reformation and uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. But it, it's a difference between being righteous in Christ and being righteous in yourself. You're righteous in Christ, according to the Reformation, in spite of your ongoing sinfulness. It's justified, righteous, and saved at the same time. So, or, on the other side, you have to acquire that righteousness in yourself and uh, you know, in you. And if you, you get so far in this, I actually have a friend uh, who converted from uh, Protestantism to being a Roman Catholic, and he now believes in purgatory. And he tells me he thinks he will have to repent in purgatory of every single sin he ever committed. Well, that sounds like a long process to me. And it doesn't sound to me like the grace of the gospel. You know, because I am righteous in myself, I will be saved and have eternal life with God. Because of, that's the Roman Catholic idea, because of the righteousness in us. Whereas the Reformation idea is, in spite of your sinfulness, God has already accepted you. He's already covered your sins. He's already taken uh, you into himself. Just as Sifa Kampaji, that, that pastor in Uganda, said, I have already died with Christ, and my life is hid with Christ in God. Well, I, th- I think I'll uh, round it out there and throw the floor open uh, to questions. I haven't done a good job of leaving much time for questions in past sessions, but uh, I'm going to uh, you know, spare myself uh, 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 at least that much time in purgatory by uh, 
I'm throwing open the floor now if, if you have any questions or comments. Yes. I think that is a difficult Yes. And of course, we should never be reconciled to sin in a certain sense. But in another sense, we don't want to be overly anxious at the same time. So the, the key is not looking to yourself. The key is looking away from yourself to Christ. You look to Christ on the cross. There, there's a famous painting. It's actually a medieval painting by Matthias Grunewald. Uh, do any of you know this uh, painting? Of a, uh, it, it's almost unbearable to look at. Uh, it's a very large Christ, very large crucified Christ in agony. And his body looks like it's covered with little twigs. You know, there's just these little twigs coming out. And apparently it, it represents some actual disease that people were uh, experienced. But each of these little twig-like things seems like a point of agony for Christ on the cross. And off to one side in this painting is John the Baptist. And there's a symbol of the lamb with the cross over its shoulder, the medieval symbol, the lamb of God who takes it. And there's John the Baptist standing to the side of the cross, pointing to, to the crucified Jesus. And John the Baptist's finger in this painting, you, you could look it up, G-R-U-N-E-W-A-L-D, it's, it's a wonderful painting. Uh, it's a rather elongated finger, and it's pointing to Christ on the cross. And the, the whole idea is when we're burdened with guilt, when we're... Uh, in despair about our sinfulness, don't look to yourself. Look away from yourself to Christ. He is our righteousness and life in spite of everything. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not a license to sin, because when you know that, as the Heidelberg Catechism said, it's impossible. Impossible in what sense? It's logically impossible. It's logically impossible not to want to do good works, not, not to want to give yourself to God in the way that God has already and continues to give himself to you. you know, that gift of grace uh, comes to you uh, in ever new ways again and again. And your uh, task is to respond to that as best you can. But don't be overly weighed down. See, this was Luther's problem to begin with, you know, scruples. Don't be overly weighed down with uh, the, the sin that clings so closely. It's there. It needs to be taken seriously. You, you don't want to be indifferent to it. You don't want to be quietistic about it, indifferent to, to giving that response to grace, as you're enabled to do uh, by the Holy Spirit uh, from time to time. Uh, so there are two problems to avoid, you know, despair and complacency. You know, you don't want either one of those. But the solution is John the Baptist solution. You know, pointing away from us to Christ on the cross. There's the love of God. There's the grace of God. There's our righteousness and life. And that's good news. In spite of all of our shortcomings. 
And in spite of the way in which we don't make the progress that we would really like to make, and, and we're not making it. Yeah, what about it? Yeah, yeah. Can you quote it? Excellent. Yes, I mean, those, Leviticus is such a strange book, right? Uh, but it's really a clue to understanding the mercy of sacrificial substitution. Uh, God didn't have to be appeased. You know, it's not as if God was wrathful until these sacrifices took place and then God could be gracious and merciful. No, the grace of God, the mercy of God set up these strange sacrificial practices. They're already merciful. They're grounded in mercy. The mercy seat is at the center of it. They're carried out in mercy. And they end in mercy. Mercy is not conditional in these sacrifices. Mercy is the basis. Mercy is the origin. Mercy is the whole point. God doesn't have to have these sacrifices in order for his wrath to be removed. His wrath is removed. You know, his rejection, uh, right, right rejection of, of everything that contradicts his love uh, is transferred to the sacrificial victim, and, and that is finally Christ himself. So he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is sort of what John the Baptist is symbolizing there in that Grunewald uh, painting. Um, but uh, it's a strange logic, and is it, is it impossible? Is it inconceivable? Well, it's actual. You know, I mean, this is the way God set it up. There's an inner grammar. There's a, it's, a, it's a strange form of life. It, it, you know, people who object to this on ordinary moral or legal terms, you know, no one can bear the guilt of another, I mean, from a courtroom standpoint, that's correct. From a moral standpoint, that's correct. But it's something like saying, I don't like uh, checkers. Be, uh, be, I don't like chess because it has a different set of rules than the rules of checkers. You know, this is just a different set of rules in, in the sacrificial religion of Israel. It doesn't make sense in moral or courtroom terms. It has its own inner logic, and it's either accepted as, as a, a self-contained form of life, or it isn't. So that's the way I think of it. You know, to, there, there are limits to moral and legal thinking. And by the grace of God, there's this other form of life that transcends and overcomes the legal and moral problem of our guilt. So the sacrificial religion of Israel is God's response to the moral and legal problem of our fallenness and guilt. It, it has to, it's a severe mercy. It's a harsh and dreadful love. And you can't separate the love of God from the wrath of God or the righteousness of God from the mercy of God. But the mercy and the love are the dominant note. Uh, and punishment and wrath and so on 
are secondary aspects of how God's mercy is carried out in that harsh and dreadful way, in that severe way, uh, so that restoration is the goal, not uh, retribution and punishment. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you have to realize that human beings are endlessly resourceful in uh, in interpreting. So, if you have your basic scheme then you can find a way of accommodating all that. Uh, I guess they would have to say that finally these great sinners of the Old Testament, you know, like David and Moses and whoever, I mean, you know, none of these people are moral exemplars. Uh, uh, They're somehow led to repentance in the end. I mean, what happened in the, the story we heard from the pulpit last week about you know, uh, Jacob having to uh, confront Esau and so on. I mean, was Jacob finally really penitent? Or was he just sort of still trying to save his own skin somehow in a self-seeking way? I don't know. I, I think you would have to posit that all of these uh, great sinners of the Old Testament were somehow led to repentance uh, and penitence uh, in order to... Uh, receive the grace and mercy of God. I, I, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I, I think the Old Testament is filled with justified sinners. You know, they're, they're, they're saved in spite of themselves, you know, in spite of their sins. You know, that, that, that there's more grace in God than there is sin in us. That's the Reformation insight. Yeah. Yeah, they tend not to think in terms of total depravity. They, they think there's some little ember left that is capable of responding uh, to the grace of God. You know, the, 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 the total depravity idea is much more mysterious. It can finally only be expressed in paradoxical terms. You know, there's an old hymn. Maybe it's in your hymnal. I don't know. Or I, I don't know. Here, you'd have to have a new musical setting for it, right? Uh, you know, they, they, they take the old words and, and they, they find new musical, you know, upbeat settings for them. There's an old hymn that's not sung very much anymore in the PCUSA that I'm a part of. It's not even in our hymn, hymnal anymore. But I like it when hymns have good theology in them. Uh, and this is probably too complicated for your average churchgoer in the PCUSA these days, but it's, it's a terrific hymn. I sought the Lord, and afterwards I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found thee, Savior, true. I was found of thee. See, that's very paradoxical. I mean, I, I think that verse uh, is the, the confessions of St. Augustine in a nutshell, if you know that, uh, that text, I sought the Lord. Starts out with me doing the seeking. You know, I, I'm the active person. And afterwards, in retrospect, I looked back and I knew something else. Afterwards, I know 
he moved my soul. See, there's the mystery. You know, total depravity is no obstacle to the grace of God. You know, he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. I thought I was seeking God, but God moved my soul by grace to seek him, seeking me. I didn't know that until afterwards. In retrospect, I could see he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me, so that finally I can say, it was not I that found you, Savior true. I was found by you. Well, this is based on certain passages from Paul, right? Paul says, I worked harder than any of them in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about all the other apostles. And then he immediately catches himself, remember? I worked harder than him, and yet, not I, but the grace of God within me. See, that's the paradox. You need the whole thing. I, I sought the Lord, I worked harder than him, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. But he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. Or uh, a similar paradox uh, in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think that means work out your salvation as a gift that's already given. It's the basis. It's, it's not the goal. You know, that you have to work it out in order to attain it. You know, there would be more than one way to read that. If, if it's a goal, then it depends on you working it out. But if it's, if it's already a gift that's given, then you have to live it out. Live it out, work it out, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, yeah? But how's it go on? For it is God who is at work within you to do and accomplish his good pleasure. See, that's paradoxical. Again, so there's a, there's a similar passage in Galatians. So I, I, I think we need that I, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. God's grace and human freedom are not competitive. It's not like a colored tube filled with... uh, It's it's not like a a glass tube filled with colored water. So the more grace, the less freedom. The more freedom, the less grace, or partly, partly. That that doesn't work in in this case. It's more mysterious. Uh, They're not competitive, so they can't be divided up into parts. It's not mostly God and then the rest up to me. Maybe, maybe some people here, are, my students aren't old enough anymore, but maybe some people here are old enough to remember the old ivory soap. Uh, and 99 and 44, 100 percent pure. So uh, let's say grace does 99 and 44, 100 percent of it, but then there's that little fraction, you know, that 0.56 left there. If, if it depends on that, it's all over. You know, that fraction corrupts the whole thing. It has to be 100% the grace of God and complete dependence of human freedom on that grace. This is very mysterious. See, people don't like mystery. They don't like paradox. But if you don't like mystery and paradox, you can't get the doctrine of the Trinity. You can't get the mystery of the Incarnation. You can't get the mystery of grace and freedom. Grace and freedom, as I see it, is just as mysterious as the Incarnation. In fact, I think it's kind of a projection out from the incarnation. Uh, so you, you have to develop a sense and taste for mystery expressed in paradoxical terms. But it's right there in Paul. I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but... The, see, you need all three. Paul really did it, but from another point of view, it was actually the grace of God. Uh, 
and so it wasn't him at all. Uh, he moved my soul to seek him, seeking the, me. It was not I that found thee, Savior Drew, I was found of thee. See, we need that paradox. We have to learn to live with that mystery, with that paradox. What's that mean in practice? It means prayer. It means being continually in the posture of prayer, turning to God again and again with empty hands, that God might use us in spite of ourselves, in spite of that sin that clings so closely. Uh, You don't want to be indifferent to that, but you don't want to be thrown into despair about it either, because finally, it's the grace of God that matters in spite. I mean, who was Paul? He persecuted the church. You know, in that list, I'll I'll close with this. We have to go to church. Paul talks about who Christ appeared to in 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared first to to Cephas, to Peter. He appeared to James, appeared to Paul. And then there there are groups that are mentioned as well. Well, who was Peter? I mean, look, Peter was an apostate. He betrayed Christ. What's he doing in that list? James, the brother of our Lord, probably is is one of those brothers who wanted to send Jesus to his death in John chapter 6. I mean, Jesus' family uh, was embarrassed by him. So James is a kind of a stiff-necked Israelite. So you've got Peter, who's kind of an apostate. You've got James, who's resistant. And you've got Paul, the persecutor. We talk about these as conversions. I would suggest they're actually more than conversions. These are little resurrections from the dead. The risen Christ raises people from the dead. If Peter is in that list, and James, and Paul, then the Lord God is a God of second chances. God is a God of second chances who raises us from the dead when we come to faith, and then throughout our lives, Again and again, we're raised from the death of our sins again and again in spite of our sinfulness. And that's something that's clearer, at least, on the Reformation side, as far as I can tell, than on the Catholic side.